Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks to Skylight. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you, Kit, for coming out. I was the one who invited you. That's true. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. As it were, in the other sense. That's true. Well, it's a long. It could be a long night. We'll see. Um, so we've been talking about things for a while now, um, through email and in person, and it's sort of an ongoing conversation about writing and about what we're working on and what we're reading and what we're interested in and um, often it's private and sometimes we've done it in public for the LA Review of Books. We've done this a couple times and so this is part of an ongoing discussion, correct? Um, The LARB it's alright to call it that. I I guess it is. It is Uh, now. (laughs) LARB, whatever. Los Angeles Review of Books Um, I had interviewed Scott that's a different story, but we'll get to all that. And uh, I knew he had a book coming. And at the time that he was interviewing me, and it was intensive uh, because it was, uh, we you know, mailed our hopes and dreams to each other and how we got the idea for things and all the rest of it. And uh, I suggested to them that the Reed-O'Connor dialogues could probably go on and that there might be be a point to my interviewing him. So uh, I grilled him, and the difference between us was that he would send beautifully articulated questions to me, and I would mail mail back at length. This was before we got on Facebook and we got funny, uh, which was not a bad thing to have done. Um, so I start with Scott, and by that time we've met each other in person, uh, and we know each other's heads a little bit. And um, so I mail him a question, and he gives me two line answers. You write the shortest emails of anyone I sure. know, and I'm like, "Wait, we're writing something together here!" And uh, I'm doing all the jumping. And uh, so we then migrated to Facebook for a lot of the dialogue because it just got bigger when that happened. Well, I have like a Watergate method of answering questions. That's why I'll be asking most of the questions tonight because I just deny. And, just deny, deny, and what I'll be doing is staring and <laughs> until you have you start going blah blah blah, which is right. the interviewing techniques CIA uses and reporters, which I used to be one of. But we haven't talked about this at all. No. And I've read this. I'm assuming most people here have not read this yet. This is actually not a great. This is not the copy you should buy. You should buy the good-looking copy, which is back here. This is the ugly publisher's copy. Um, but we haven't talked about it by design. Yeah even though I have read it and had a lot of questions about it. But because most people here have not read it, we'll try to keep it spoiler-free. Which is... So I want to start with the ending, <laughs> which, if you could just read the last few pages. Um, and then see if you can work backward and build Yeah, up. work back, back from the there. Um, but where did the... Well, let's, let's start at the beginning. Where, where did the idea, if you could put a fine point on it, where did the idea for the novel... What was the moment where you thought you might have something um, that you could spend? Probably when I was 11. Okay. <laughs> it was not that I was going to write a book about this, but uh, we had in our house, my parents were in the Book of the Month Club, and something called Sea Devil's Focusal had come into the house, and I read kind of 
I read, did I read, I did not read Kabluna because it was boring, but I read Tortilla Flat and whatever else came in. Um, this had the account of the Marie Celeste, which is what the guy called it, uh, which was the uh, ship that was found floating absolutely empty. And this had been a ship with that. This thing is in my eyes. Um, there had been a full ship's complement. There had been the skipper's wife and children. There had been various other civilians on board. They're all gone. There's no sign of violence of any kind. Um, food on the stove, pots that are still hot, pillows that still have dents in them from where people are, and they're gone. And this is a mystery that was never solved. And once you've heard that, you can't forget it. And so all this time later, I was like, what if the population, first I knew that I wanted the situation, but I knew I didn't want to write a book about the Marie Celeste. I wanted to write something that I would write. And I actually bought a couple of books about the and I read half of one about the Marie Celeste, and I thought, no. And I started making it up, which is what I kind of do. <laughs> so I knew that it would be an like population of a small island and that they would vanish mysteriously. And there's the part that I can't tell that I said to my editor when I said I was going to do this. So, but when was the moment? Because if you, you were first aware of the Marie Celeste at 11, why did you write it in the last couple of years versus 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Yes, what was well, it that. I don't know. Um, I, it wasn't three, Flight 370 because that came mm -hmm. after. The book was in, it was interesting because I was having this editorial conference that I told you about. Um, at ReaderCon, which is a science fiction thing, which, uh, not ReaderCon, uh, ICFA, which Ben knows about because he's been, uh, which is essentially seven, uh, about probably 400 academics and 70 of us, and uh, some editors and agents and that. And uh, it was the end of someone's bed at the president's party for uh, the president of the International Conference of the Fantastic in the Arts. And... Uh, just kind of standing at the end of the bed in the room in the president's suite, they were just like, oh, by the way, because I've read, he'd read it by then, uh, and he read it for the second time and had his notes. And his, Marco, who's the second of the Troika that I was telling you about, editorial Troika, had uh, been supposed to come down the, with the manuscript that he'd marked up and he'd brought the wrong book. So David was doing it off the top of his head. But uh, we ended up in the concierge suite with all the stuff about Flight 370 going on. And this is the Malaysian airline, and they never found the, they haven't found the plane. And you heard survivors on television saying, I know he, she is still alive out there because they're not dead. There are no bodies. There's no sign. There's no proof. Wreckage. There's no proof. There's no proof. So the idea that this could happen is kind of what it came from. And why I wanted to do it then was, I don't know. It was time. Yeah. And there's something in, you know, I was going back and uh, reading, rereading some of your earlier work, and we've talked about this before, but there's a, there's a theme, one of the themes, if you look at your body of work, is people disappearing. And the people who are left behind and what happens to them in the waiting and often sort of surreal circumstances. I'm thinking of like pilots of the purple twilight or, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there, there are these, there are these stories. Um, we don't have it up here, but uh, uh, the story until now, which is a great collection which of, of kits. Yeah, they have, yeah, they the have up there. 
Oh, wait. Here, the photo. Oh, it's behind you. Here, here it oh, is. Oh, yeah, that's the actual jacket photo, but when you get to the book, um, Gloria Villegas, who is here, took this photo of me, and um, five people at the publishers, actually it was only four, but one of them was the designer, one was the editor, one was the publicist, and one was the assistant, who I kind of blame for what happened. Um, always blame the assistant. Yes, always. <laughs> that's their job. <laughs> Am I not right, those of you who have been assistants? Um, they all had copies of it, but somehow Wrong someone photo grabbed in. for um, something that they had in their files from the year 2000, and that's what's on the book. But uh, I am told that there are seven, count them, seven prints of this in the hands of one of my personal representatives here in the house, and there are several <laughs> immediately related to me. Uh, I know you all. And... Uh, the first seven people that get their book signed get one of these photos hmm? to tack in. Okay. <laughs> but in a different photo, the story until now has a number of, and I'd recommend if you're going to pick up where you should, but you should also pick up the story until now, which is one of the great short story career spanning collections that we have around. You like it. I love it. I oh, love it. that's awesome. Um, but when you look at any, any writer of, of weight, uh, at a career, you're always going to see uh, themes, you're going to see obsessions, you're going to see concerns that kind of weave the, their way in and out of the work, which the writer may or may not be conscious of when they're, they're working. Um, but there's definitely this, this vein through some of your work, especially in the stories of, of people missing and people being left behind. And what, to me, one of the things that was so fascinating about this, having read a lot of the earlier work, is that I think for many writers who... who at a certain point in their career may become aware of some of these themes. You address it head on here, whether consciously or not. That's going to be yeah, my next yeah. question. Well, but you what, really yeah. go into it, you know, you, you point the plane at it and say, we're going to go in there and, and see what's here. What happens to people when they disappear? What happens to the people in my stories, maybe, that have disappeared, that I've been talking about over time? And the book attempts to answer that in a very real way. And uh, actually, my editor asked uh, me, you know, um, should we explain um, where this is coming from? Because I, I, indeed, when I was organizing the collection, I was thinking, oh, okay, these are all the war ones, and uh, these are all the mm -hmm. one-woman lone <laughs> ones, those things. <coughs> and um, then I wrote a story. This book had been... I guess during the period that I was waiting to hear about this book and whether indeed they were going to publish it, I wrote the story called Military Secrets, um, which I included there. And um, essentially it's based on all the children whose parents and dis fathers disappeared in any war. And uh, since my father had done that, it wasn't the Civil War. Um, but, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, that was where it came from. Were you... Obviously, you were aware of that when you started the novel, or was it something yeah. that as you were going into it, you realized, oh, I'm writing about this again? And no, I'm no, I knew, uh, I think I knew when I went in, because obviously, once you are obsessed by the idea of missing, and the fact that you never have proof that the person died, you never have anything left over from them, um, around that time, you get very interested in... Um, what people think about that and what they think for a very long time is that they're going to get them back someday. You mean getting interested in this has happened to people before me? 
This uh, happened to the families uh, of the Marie that, Celeste. That, this, this is happened. what it was like for them too. I see. The, uh, this thing, uh, like this survivor, uh, one of this three seven, uh, flight three seventy survivors, uh, a father who knew that his son was still out there because they had not found the de- uh, the remains of the plane. They had not found the bodies. And then you're thinking about, yeah, whatever happened to Virginia Dare back then, and whatever happened to um, mm-hmm. Roanoke and Roanoke, yeah, yeah. And did you did you worry at any point when you had decided that was the road you were going down that you weren't going to be able to answer it for yourself? Um, where that person was? Well, there's a or what had happened to these people? Both. Well, I'll tell you my experience reading it. Okay. Because whenever you read a book where the author is intentionally painting themselves into a corner as a reader. If you don't know that author, you want them to get out of the corner because it's going to be a more enjoyable experience if they figure out how are they going to get out of this, right? How are they going to turn this around? When you do know the author, there's that and there's also, oh God, you know, how is Kit going to get out of this corner? Now we're on page, you know, 250 out of 260. How is she going to get out of this corner? And it was, I felt, you know, actually tense reading the book, not just because of what was happening in the book, but that sense of like, somebody's up on the high wire and don't fall off the high wire. And I'll say that you don't. You know, um, you get out of the corner. Really cool, because yeah. how it was was built in. That was what I told my editor from the beginning. So you knew that from this the beginning. How, no, that was, I wanted to Oh, wanted, getting I into the wanted, corner. Um, yeah, I knew exactly that. And I also knew that she was going to fall in love with him. Don't give it, don't give too much away. But, no, I'm not. But so you knew going in how you were going to get out. Yeah, well, uh, I didn't know whether it was an out or not. I knew how the book was going to end. I see. Which, you know, and since several people have been pissed off, uh, the real science fiction monks, a lot of them wanted kind of, it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the dagger solution. Or, so you see, the Martians came down and did this. And this is not that kind of a solution. Because... Missing is missing, right. and mystery is mystery. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's a mystery is because no one actually, it's not you know, like a detective story, it's something that there's no absolute answer to that we know. No, and I felt that in the book. I felt like you started with one question at the beginning, and by the end you had answered it as far as anyone could reasonably expect it yeah, to be answered, yeah. but I was left with five other questions. Okay. Which is sort of how cool. I want to leave a book. I don't yeah, want to leave yeah. a book and say, you know, done, never need to think about this again. It was more <laughs> of like, okay, well, she answered, she fulfilled the promise of going into the book, but now, wait a second. Yeah. Um, it was also that uh, we know where they are the whole time. Right, right. They well, don't we think know we where do. it is. Yeah. And we don't know where it is, but we see where they are mm-hmm. and the, it happening to them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about... Well, that sounds nebulous. <laughs> well, and it is, and I think in the book... Well, there, this leads me to another question I want to ask about um, the tense, doing it in pre- most of the books in present tense. Yeah. Um, what I've, happened to me in, like, um, the 70s, all of a sudden, I was writing in present tense, and I have no idea why. It was like, boom. Do you find it... More, you must find it more comfortable it's now to do it. Thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's now not quite habitual. But if I write something in past tense, I have to think about it. Right. But do you feel like um, there's a particular challenge to writing in the present tense because everything is going so fast? Yeah. You know, everybody's speeding down the highway in the car, and if everyone's speeding in the highway in the car, then nobody's speeding in the highway in the car. So there's a. It's more of a. To me, it's more of a rhythmic challenge almost. Yeah. And how am I going to? 
get these sentences to move when everyone's moving. Oh, it's quickly. about velocity. It's a mm-hmm. or, or, yeah, it's a rhythm thing. I mean, I can't explain it. But there is there's some isn't Davy in the past time? Um, he's in the third he's, person. Uh, he's in the third person. Uh, yeah, the fir- the third person's people. Um, he has the scene at, with Ross and Steele in the beginning, and I think it's okay to say that um, he's going to town to meet this guy who appears to be, he thinks, slick guy from out of town who's going to come and wreck the island. And it's an off-island meeting, and it's when he starts, A, the guy doesn't show up, and B, he starts home, and there's a her- terrible traffic jam because there are all kinds of uh, rescue vehicles and trucks and, uh, you know, the fire people, the cops, the uh, EMTs are all headed out for, uh, he thinks, Pointer Island, but it's the island beyond, which is Craven Island. Um, there's something wrong. He doesn't know until he gets to the bridge and discovers that it's blocked and that they're, you know, that there are all these abandoned cars on the bridge, that it's his people, something's happened over there. And he gets over there, and they're all gone. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's gone national, all kinds of army flyovers, mm-hmm. all the rest of it are going on. And uh, so you've got, this is the guy that's been left behind, and he will do anything to get her back, because he's had this fight with the girlfriend who has vanished along with everybody else. And Craven Island is not a real place, um, or is it? If you looked, if you went to Beaufort, South Carolina, and you went over the um, Ladies Island Bridge, you would go across Ladies Island, and then you would go to Hunting Island, and uh, Hunting Island was the beach. Um, I just kind of made that there was a little bitty island kind of there, because Craven Island now is where on the ocean mm-hmm. on one side, and on the inland waterway on the other side. But you didn't want to use a real place. Uh, well, it was a real place, except I named it something else. And you could it would fool be around like with writing a about bit. your high school principal and calling him Mister Something Else instead. Right, it's a lawsuit thing rather than a, 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 a yeah, not thing. even because I don't think anybody out there would have the foggiest idea that I thought about <laughs> the fact that I was there in high school. <laughs> Um, you mentioned uh, science fiction and um, you know response to the book or to books, yeah. um, and we've talked about this before and about labels. Um, and I know Tor is putting this out, right? Is that right? Yeah, David. What David said to me, my editor was, "I'm going to have to sell this as science fiction because um, the label, their genre." people who follow the labels and are very interested. You know, they're always uh, people who want to uh, have more books of this person because um, they like the person or because they're collectors. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a marketing thing. Sure. And at the moment, well, this is a kind of a not quite a literary novel. It's kind of literary, but it's, you know, that doesn't fly. So then you sell it as science fiction. It's that if you don't belong anywhere, which I don't really... Um, you go where they'll take you, and that audience will because they're happy with suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. and stuff you made up. But for you, if we if we get rid of the labels, because you're not, I'm assuming you're not thinking about any of those things when you're writing. Obviously, no, I'm thinking about what I want to do, right? And then afterward, I'm thinking about who might like it. You know. But what do you get from? Because you could tell this story if you wanted to. This could be a story about somebody whose husband went to work and never came back, or somebody's wife who went to work and never came back. But to take that extra step and say, well, it's going to be about an entire island. Yeah. You know, is is there's something about pushing things one step beyond 
maybe kind of kitchen sink realism. So what to you as a writer, what do you get from pushing it that extra step um, out there? Elbow room. In what way? Um, simply that if it's kitchen sink, okay, nobody's going to vanish. The husband has run away or he's been kidnapped. Uh, it's going to be a different kind of story. And if you want a story where anything can happen, like a whole island disappearing, then you have entertained the idea that there are things that might stand for something else, but they aren't hanging you know, on potholders by the kitchen sink. Does it also put you at more risk because the explanation cannot just be that the husband or the wife ran off with Yeah, from the people who say that would never happen, you know, but they should not be reading me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And probably would not be reading me. Yeah, no, that's probably true. But you don't feel like if you were to if you were to bring it back a few steps, right? Which you wouldn't. But if you were, you have an out. The out is that at the end there can be a realistic, there can be an explanation for this that everybody yeah. would get. There was but, a car accident. There was. Whereas, yeah. the, but this from page two, it's like no, the whole island has disappeared. So yeah, there's no explanation that we can a, all. Basically, a hundred people. So it's right. like. But if you'll notice, the book is filled with theories that people had, mm-hmm. um, because when something like this happens, and if you read, I got involved in Son of Destruction with um, Mabel Reeser. Mary Reeser of St. Petersburg, Florida, who in 1957 spontaneously combusted and burned in her Barca lounger in her very carefully furnished room. There are investigators going to St. Petersburg, Florida to this day trying to find out exactly what happened. That um, once there is a mystery, people aren't going to let it alone. And... What is it about those mysteries if you talk about spontaneous combustion or someone disappearing? What is it about those particular mysteries that's drawn you, do you think? I don't know. As opposed to other mysteries. Um, I, uh, other mysteries are, uh, you know, Colonel Mustard with the uh, dagger in the library kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or the thing that's on the back of the thing that's on the back of the other thing, uh, you know. Uh, I'm not very interested in mechanical explanations. I'm interested in metaphysical explanations or imaginative explanations because I basically grew up on the Oz books and the idea that you could read and write things where anything can happen. Well, and isn't there something, or is there something to, because I feel like in your work, and in this in, in particular too, a lot of this book, there's a, there's a teenage character who is one of the people who disappears and ends up in this sort of netherworld. And he spends sort of the first third of the book pissed off because he was playing a video game when he disappeared. And it was an MMOR. Right, and he'll never get back into this world, and he was so close to the end. And there's something about it, and in, in your other books too, and other stories where you know the fantastic happens to people, and yet they can't get out of their own petty way. It's like the fight you had with your significant other is still there even though you wake up in some weird purgatory. That's because people are people. Right, but I think there's something that grounds the work in a very realistic way that even though these fantastic things are happening to them, they're characters that not only we can relate to, but we think, oh yeah, right, we would still have these terrible fights Uh, with each other. I write from character. And so there's always a sense, uh, I I think, at one point I was talking to a friend, a director, and the fact that um, essentially... 
actor, or actors and writers are doing some of the same. They're disappearing into the characters. You become the person that you're playing on the stage. You become the person that you're writing. So that you're in that head for... Which is as realistic as I think anybody can get. Mm-hmm. And in some ways the event becomes secondary. Yeah, the psychology is, has to be true for me. Because I think what attracts me to the books is when you're talking about something like spontaneous combustion, it, it just happens. It's, it's a weird thing that can happen in your day. It probably won't, but it could, and, and it uh, has. There were a couple in, uh, there was one in Texas after I'd written the book. There were a couple, I think there was one in Ireland. Uh, it happens. Right, or you can get on a plane and disappear. Yeah. It can happen. Well, yeah, planes obviously sure. can disappear because they, they may never find traces of that plane. Mm-hmm. So that in somebody's mind, the minds of the survivors, whatever, it's still out there. They're still out there. Did you feel when you were writing this, did you think back to the stories like uh, Purple Twilight or even in the Squalus or, or stories uh, that are about people missing, did you think back that you were kind of finishing a circle in a way, or was that not... No, I think I was writing what I felt at the time. Uh, the Squalus story was a um, really long time ago, like 60s, and um, Purple Twilight, maybe 80s. They, It's obviously just something that wouldn't let me go, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't let it go. Because I felt there's a moment toward the end where one of the characters is... is going through this litany of real-world disappearances. They're talking about the yeah, Marie yeah. Celeste. They're talking about, you know, what happened to us has happened to other people. And I kept thinking, I kept waiting for them to say, to mention the characters from these early stories because it felt like it was all part of the same universe. Oh, uh, it, it may be, but, uh, you know, it's not Yachtan Matafa County, uh, but maybe right. it's Yachtan Matafa County in my head, yeah. which, uh, you know, which is probably kind of a creepy place to be. <laughs> Well, and including the story is Military Secrets is in the yeah, published book, too? For, yeah, yeah. So how did that, you said you wrote that story after the novel uh, came I was, out? While I was waiting after to hear uh, whether they were going to buy it, I think it was that summer. And what was the discussion like of including, because it's sort of unusual to include a um, short story at the end of a novel. David had said to me, well, you know, people have to have some idea where this is coming from. And uh, so I wrote a little squib about the Mary Celeste um, which is in the book, but I had also written this story, and so I simply sent it to him and suggested it might be useful. And when I got the arcs, it was in it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I read that. You gave me that story about a year ago. I did, yeah. And I read it, and I remember I I lost it. It was in my carry-on luggage, and I found it later, and I read it, and I sent you a, a... Message right after I read it, which I never do, and I said, I love this story. That's kind of like I did with Untouchable. That, incidentally, is how we met. I read Untouchable on the plane on the way out here, and uh, I had to write to you so that you knew when you saw the review of Story Until Now uh, and uh, Son of Destruction in the Times, you mailed me. Mm. And, you got, and I thought, oh, he likes me. Right, well, it was like a stalking <laughs> yeah. thing. I was, I was stalking you, but then you, it was self <laughs> Right, out. it was mutual. Um, but I, I love this story, and I was so happy to see it included in the book. But when you told me that, that it was included to sort of clarify things, I, I find it does the exact opposite. I think it deepens the mystery, <laughs> which I loved at the end, because oh, you're left with... You know, the, the questions you needed answered are answered, but there's a, there are more questions. And then there's this beautiful story at the end that kind of deepens the world and yet, to me, throws it all into even more questions. So I find that interesting that they, they saw this as, like, give us the director's cut and explain what happened. Because well, I, they may have just gotten tired. <laughs> right. No it could have been a fatigue, a fatigue yeah. thing. Um, 
Should we open it up to? Uh, I was about to say to we're questions from people. Some of you, somebody, friends, relations, friends, relations. Even if you haven't their, read the book. My, even if you haven't read the book, although I know at least one person who has. <laughs> questions are answered. Oh. <laughs> how many questions about that, or how you write, or how he writes? Um, I have a question about how you write. <laughs> okay. What's your What's your favorite part of the process from from the moment you have an idea that may or may not come to anything to the moment you're sitting here in the actual physical thing? I know that's an impossible question, uh, but what's one of your favorite moments? Um, actually, arcs. Yeah. Bound galleys because you've done what you can do and. People haven't started hating it yet. <laughs> right, it's all possibility at that yeah, point. Yeah, 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 totally. What's your least favorite part? Um, copy edit. Hmm. Because if they start rewriting me, I go ballistic. And that is why I spent the week after I had the concussion making the glossary and the usage for uh, pages for, and it turned out to be 10 single space pages for the copy editor. I do not use the Oxford comma. I do not use it for reasons of velocity. You know, that stuff. And what, uh, as it turns out, it could have been a book with rockets in it because the Inland Waterway, uh, Geechee culture, Gullah culture, um, because Davy's best friend um, is a Gullah, which means descendant of one of the, I guess they were originally slaves, but that was the great thing about Beaufort was that the freed slaves lived on Ladies Island in, uh, forgotten what the name of the colony was, but the Quakers had a colony there and the free men immediately went out there and they had a place where they could be and, uh, you know, start new lives. Mm-hmm. And um, the vocabulary and the cadencing are different down there. And when you've ridden around Beaufort High School uh, you know, with guys in pickup, rednecks in pickup trucks, the music that's in their heads is different from what you hear. The really, yeah, so, all right, that's why I write these 10-page notes to copy editors. And if the book had been set on Mars, I would have had probably as many verbal peculiarities. How long had it been since you had physically been there? Uh, physically went back when uh, one person here was about four. Yeah. <laughs> That would be you. <laughs> so it's been about 15 years uh, yeah, since no, it was, you were there. It was more like 10. I was a child bride. <laughs> How did you remember the, the musicality of the, the language of the dialogue? Um, I, was I that a YouTube ear, thing? Uh, oh, I know why. On account of, um, if you're a Navy kid, which I was, um, and I had been in, I think we moved 12 times before I finished high school, and you would be walk into a new school, and they all were going to first they were kind of interested and then they were going to hate you and you had to like okay do you wear your socks pulled up or do you roll them uh you know do you wear your sleeves rolled up or uh, down um what do you say oh you say hey in the carolinas you don't say hi um that stuff you learn the language wherever you are so you develop an ear do you have fond memories of this place, or not so I, fond it was memories? Really, it was great, because I was 15, which um, two people here that I know are exactly that. And uh, it's the age of rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> it's the age of discovery. And uh, my mother was working at that time, which she seldom did, because um, she was a southern lady. She was working, and um, 
I was kind of hanging out, and that was awesome. And I got to do lots of stuff that I would, you know, high school, you learn basically, um, a public high school, you learn about civilization and how you survive in one. All that was going on. So I kind of, I loved it, but I also hated it. I was wondering, because you did make them all disappear. Oh, well, that, that wasn't the reason. Oh, okay. I thought no, maybe no, it was a no, revenge. No, that was, uh, no, right. no. I was not getting even. Uh, then I would have given them all more personality. That's true. You would have seen That's why true. they were so shitty. Right, right. Um, so any okay. questions before uh, Kit signs some books? And, and you get more cookies. Yeah, and you get cookies and wine. So as uh, writers, everyone has their own process. Uh, is there an editor in your head that you're constantly fighting? Write first and then come back and edit. No, I, it's as I go because uh, from the newspaper business, you had to get your lead, <coughs> or you couldn't organize your story. <coughs> so you spend a lot of time with, on that and hammer it. And when you got it right, then you can go on. And I began to work that way. So it was always uh, back in the day, there would be crumpled papers, you know, and you throw them out until Dick Wilbur said, "Well, no, you used to save those and give them to a library." And uh, <coughs> at some point, I gave. <coughs> found 17 takes for the first page of a novel that no one is mine, uh, no one has read because hardly anyone bought it called Tiger Rag and I saw in on each page how the process how the story had developed with each word change that I'd made and with each you know that suddenly there would be notes going off here about stuff that was happening um, so it's organic for me it's like um, it's either the tree flowchart thing because your options open up as you go that way or it's building a brick shit house, brick by brick by brick by brick by brick. Do you revise as you go, or do you wait to no, do a draft? No, it all then... happens then. But then you end up going back and doing all what you have to do. You retro. But sometimes in the middle you find stuff out. And what I've been doing with this other thing I was telling you about is retrofitting. That you learn things and then you go back and make it work. Right. <clears throat> do you ever um, try to just push through an entire draft, a first draft or second uh, draft, without oh, I going did back? that once with. Uh, Michael Moorcock used to write, um, in 36 hours, he would write a whole novel. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. six hours more than it takes me, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you were always so facile, as my <laughs> high school English teacher said. <laughs> he went through how many drafts on uh, Half World? It was six. Seven. Oh, yeah, there were a lot. There were a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Plus... Um, endless note taking that was happened you know all those things hey look guys rain I know this is awesome sounds great um, what was the next what was the, the rest of that just about revising that you were saying you don't oh. put, did you ever push through something and just go all the way to the oh, end yeah and I was telling you about Michael so I thought I too shall write a novel in um, 36 hours however since I had by that time, three children. It was five days a week, nine to twelve, which is when the babysitter came. And uh, but I sat down and I started writing, um, typing, and I was like this because it was about a um, guy comes uh, he comes home, uh, and calls his wife. The house is dark. The camera tilts a little bit, and he's going through the house. Honey. Honey, honey, and uh, he walks into the kitchen and sees her crouched in the corner. Honey, what's the matter with you? And all of a sudden, she leaps up and springs and kills him because she's got a virus called the Savage Stain, <laughs> which was my original uh, title. And um, it turns women into homicidal maniacs who kill, <laughs> who kill only men. <laughs> 
<laughs> which was published as Shelley Hyde by, um, I think it was Penguin Paperback. Seems almost too obvious to ask where the idea for that came from. <laughs> no idea. What did the babysitter say? Was she ever looking over your shoulder and uh, asking no, no, for no, a no, reference? I, yeah, yeah, I was three. Uh, no, no, I was fully grown. Um, uh, no, the babysitter was downstairs with the kids during this period, which uh, one faculty wife said um, it was sinful of me. Um, he told um, Jesse... Um, he told Jesse, who was sitting there, David's, well, anyway, my friend, the doctor who had her first child as an intern, medical school, second child as an intern, third as a resident, um, was talking to her and telling her how terrible it was that I would be upstairs, away from my children, typing while someone else took care of them. But I wrote this book. And and she didn't even know what you were writing. <laughs> no, well, I would have written about her. That, oh, but right. I, uh, oddly, I, I, if you go through the early stories, there are a lot of really mean women called Elva, which is what the what's name was. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, she won't listen to this. So anyway, um, I wrote it, uh, and it was like uh, it was writing. It was like. It was like typing, oh, and, the, and this happened. And the, so anyway, the heroine was a scientist, and she had been um, infected. And her, she had to find the cure before she got it and killed the guy she was in love with. It was fine. Sure. I, I was, um, that was the only one sold in the supermarket. Uh, that was, no, no, no. Actually, Gone was sold in supermarkets and airports. Um, the book was. Uh, not this one. Uh, but gone was. No, uh, I found it. Wait a minute, you did? Yeah. In our supermarket? I can't remember, but it was in the supermarket. It was DC. Really? Like at the checkout with the. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. The royalties on that must have been okay. I never saw any. Oh well, somebody got some. <laughs> yeah, wasn't me. Um, after I'd done this, I spent three months rewriting it. I would say that part because mm. it was like kind of there, but I had to fix. But that was the fastest that I'd ever done anything. And it probably not going to happen again. Because you don't have tacky ideas that often. <laughs> well, you fight against them, I guess. Maybe uh, sometimes. No, no. I would love to have it. <laughs> <laughs> Over a weekend. Yeah. yeah. So anyone else? Anyone else? We can go right. What are the first things you have published picture-wise? Um, um, the weight which was uh, is the last story in um, the story until now, which was based on uh, two things out of Herodotus that Joe told me because he was reading it at the time. And uh, one was the Babylonians, if someone got sick, uh, they put them in the town square and people would come by and say, oh, what's the matter with you? And they'd say, oh, you know, my elbow hurts. And then they'd say, oh, my aunt had that. We tried this. And then people, a person had to stay there until they either died or someone cured them. <laughs> <laughs> And the other was that they also had a thing where all the virgins, at a certain, when they reached whatever the canonical age, had to go out and sit in a field until whoever came along and did whatever was necessary to make de-virginize them. And uh, <laughs> I simply had the girl's mother, my mother was a hypochondriac, or had her mother um, get sick and be put out in the town square in Georgia and then uh, the wait was you had to go out into this field um, with a ball of string. I don't know why I gave them all white string but I know that at the New Haven Register after the story had been published um, they put a ball of string on my desk which I thought was kind of cute being as I was one of 
the only woman there. <laughs> uh, where was that? Where was the weight published? Um, it was the fantasy and science fiction. Because that's a, we talked about this before, but that's an interesting time because hadn't the lottery just been published in the um, New Yorker right around? I, I can't remember whether it was before or after because uh, she didn't start publishing until I think she was in her forties. Yeah, it was, but it, but there was a moment where the New Yorker made a switch from publishing something like the lottery or yeah. potentially like yeah, the yeah, weight to very realistic stories. kind of yeah. like John Updike. Um, and of course you always thought about the New Yorker but it never occurred to me to submit it. Right. Bad timing on my part I suppose. But didn't the, didn't the industry change along with that that the idea of what made a mainstream short story and what made a science fiction story became very different. That something yeah. like the lottery would have been published in the New Yorker and would have just been considered literary fiction in the way that you know Karen Russell now or Which George is actually, Saunders yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's come what right. around is now come around. Uh, that uh, you know, I've always been a fringe person. I don't belong here. I don't belong there. And that um, our friend Gary Wolf, um, critic, has written a book called uh, Evaporating Genres. And it's about this thing that suddenly, um, you know, Farris Strauss is uh, publishing um, Jeff Vandermeer. You know, that uh, suddenly they're realizing that there's room in the real world for what we do, which is not what they think we did. Right. It only took 50 years or however long from the lottery to... Yeah. 2000 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, she had her moment, and it had its moment, and it was uh, then shortly after the new wave started, you know, when suddenly uh, this was, you could do stuff, which was very good for me, because that was the stuff I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Which essentially had, if you'll pardon the expression, literary value. It wasn't just um, <clears> how <throat> rockets are put together or what Martians do when they're not doing something else. Right. Were you welcomed into that? community oh, you yeah, found yourself yeah, in there it's a big but, family yeah. Um, uh, yeah it's that uh, writers have not always been that nice to each other but in that field everybody you know you have cranks and you have this and you have that but generally it is uh, our, Kate has now realized it is an extended family now that's kind of cool yeah Anything else? Any other questions? We should let them go while they're not bored. Sure. Right? When it stops raining. Uh, yeah, okay. So, but anyway, there's wine up here and there are cookies and there's sure. supposed to be signing. And well, thank you for coming. Kit will sign all books, even books that aren't hers. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.